The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I want to add my welcome to that of Will's this morning. My name is Frank Hitchings. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we are glad that you're here with us on this Palm Sunday as we begin Holy Week. And we trust the Lord, whether you are uh, first time here or whether you've been here many, many times and have been a long time member, we trust the Lord to bless your time with us. Uh, before we look at this passage briefly, Uh, let's go to our God and pray and ask his blessing on our time and his word. Father, you have uh, clearly told us that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it can penetrate our hearts. It can judge, it can discern the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. You've also told us, Lord, that it always accomplishes the purposes for which you've sent it that it never returns to you void. And our prayer this morning is that you would use this passage to give us a greater understanding of who you are and what's been done for us through your son Jesus, a greater appreciation and understanding of the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Indeed, uh, it's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week and We're stepping out of our study in Deuteronomy, and we'll return to it uh, in a couple of weeks. We're stepping into 1 Corinthians for this week, and as the pastors realize this week, it's always hard to uh, skip from one book to another, to parachute into a brand new book of the Bible, especially to do so jumping halfway into a chapter. So I want to take just a few minutes this morning and review the context of where we are in Corinthians. When when you first heard the passage read this morning, it may have sounded like Paul is speaking to or he's writing uh, directly to non-believers. But it's important to remember that Paul's writing to the church, to believers in the church at Corinth. 
Surely his words have great significance uh, to the culture, to the unbelieving culture around the church, but he's writing to the church. And in the verses immediately preceding this, Paul's writing about divisions in the church. He's addressing those, some of those are saying, like, I follow Paul or I follow this, this other disciple, and there's divisions among which of the apostles they're following. He's addressing those in the church also who are claiming to be wise, and yet they're using their wisdom to actually divide the church, to not just divide the church, but to promote themselves. If you were listening uh, closely uh, when this passage was read, when David read the passage, you heard the word wisdom or the word wise used 10 times in the passage. That's a clue, right? He's trying to tell us something. He's trying to show us the difference between worldly wisdom and how it views the cross and the wisdom of God and how we as followers of Jesus Christ are to view the cross. I was uh, reading this week from Richard Pratt, who was uh, the head of Third uh, Mill, uh, the international um, ministry and seminary. He actually was a professor in seminary a long time ago when I was there in Jackson. And this is what he wrote in a little article uh, on this passage. He says, the Corinthians had not trusted worldly human wisdom for their salvation initially, but they had now begun to emphasize such wisdom over the gospel itself. In their pursuit of wisdom, they had become wise guys. How many of y'all even know the phrase wise guys, right? You, you tend to think of that, you know, that New York mafia wise guy. And then he, and Pratt goes on to say, here's the difference between a wise person, a wise man or a woman, and a wise guy. Wise people use the wisdom that they have, the intellect they have, to serve others, to help others around them. But it's not so with wise guys. Wise guys are out for themselves. Wise guys use their intellect, not their wisdom because they really don't have any, but they use their intellect to promote themselves and to take advantage of others. And that's exactly what was happening in the church. And Paul's showing uh, the Corinthian church, he's showing the church that their so-called wisdom was actually worthless. Their so-called wisdom couldn't save anyone. Their so-called wisdom couldn't further the cause of Christ. All it could do is divide. All it could do is destroy unity. So as he's dealing with this problem of division in the church, he's also making it crystal clear that Jesus didn't, did not send him to preach the gospel with eloquent words because eloquent words by themselves can't change human hearts. Eloquent words can only obscure, as he says, the power of the cross of Jesus. So that's kind of where things are in the passage that we're jumping into this morning. So besides that, if you look at your outline, we just really have two points we're gonna look at before we come to the table. The two points are this. We wanna look at what the world pursues, and secondly, what the church proclaims. What is it the world wants, and what does the church have to offer? So first, what's the world pursue? Look at verses 17, and we'll read down through verse 22. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
For the word of the cross is folly. The NIV says foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, I will frustrate. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, miraculous signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Let's just pause there. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. So what is it the world's pursuing? What is it the world wants? Paul says the answer is real clear. The world wants miraculous signs. The world wants words of eloquent wisdom. So just start in verse 20 there with demanding signs, miraculous signs. What he's saying is they want some visible attestation to the validity of the story of Jesus and the cross. They want a visible attestation to the to the validity of the gospel message of Jesus. And without those miraculous signs, they're not prepared to believe in Jesus. So think about that for a minute. Think about the, the New Testament story uh, and, and how that fits with the New Testament story. I was thinking this week of Matthew chapter 12. There's a great passage in Matthew 12 where Jesus actually heals a man whose hands are uh, uh, severely withered. He heals the guy, but he does it on the Sabbath. And it doesn't go over well with the Pharisees. He has this miraculous sign of this miraculous healing. And the response of the Pharisees is this. They went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. We want miraculous signs, but Jesus performs them and they go out and try to figure out how we can do away with him, how we can kill him. Or I love the story in Luke 16. If you're taking notes, Luke 16, 19 through 31, there's this great story of a rich man who lived in luxury. And then there's a poor man named Lazarus, not the Mary and Martha brother Lazarus, a different one. A poor beggar named Lazarus who lived on the rich man's doorstep longing for the crumbs. Remember? The crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. And in this story that Jesus is telling, both men die and Lazarus, he says, goes to Abraham's side, meaning he goes to heaven. And the rich man went to hell and was in anguish. And the rich man uh, is in this conversation and at the end of the conversation, he asks, if I can't go back, can Lazarus go back, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers, tell my family what awaits them? And Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. Let them listen to them, to Moses and the prophets. And the rich man replies, no, no, that won't work. But if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent. And Abraham's reply was this. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. He's so right. If you think about the gospel 
accounts of the young man in the city of Nain that was raised from the dead, or Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother who's raised from the dead, or Jairus' daughter who's raised from the dead, or Jesus who is raised from the dead. It wasn't enough. Miraculous signs weren't enough. They were demanding miraculous signs, but even when they saw those signs, even when they were given those signs, they still refused to believe, whether it's healings, whether it's the casting out of demons, whether it's actual resurrections, miraculous signs can't change human hearts. Only the spirit of the living God can do that. So what does the world want? What is the world pursuing? The world wants miraculous signs, he says, and Greeks want words of eloquent wisdom. The the Greeks wanted these eloquent uh, stories, this, this philosophy, these patterns of thought that they were so familiar with. They wanted a message that, that jived well with them. I was, uh, I was reading David Strain's sermon this week on this passage. David Strain is the pastor at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, where I actually interned doing college ministries, and so did Will, as a matter of fact. We didn't overlap, let's put it that way. But... <laughs> We both had the same job at First Pres back in the day. And David Strain points this out. It's so helpful. He says, to be wise in Corinth would ordinarily be expected to result in honor and prestige and influence and power. The wise could sway the crowd. The wise could navigate politics and advance their own social standing. And he's right. That's what wisdom gave you in Corinth. Eloquent words. They were advantageous to your personal uh, uh, reputation. They were advantageous to your personal advancement. They might bring you prestige and influence and power and honor. They'd certainly give you a lift in social standing. But they can't change the human heart. Paul's saying they can't change the human heart. Only the spirit of the living God can do that. So what's the point? Well, I was thinking about it this week. If we think about our culture, it's really not that much different. People want signs. They want evidence. They want proof, but proof that aligns with their own beliefs and their own preferences. They want a convincing, eloquent message, but that message needs to mesh with their philosophy of life, with their understanding of what's culturally appropriate of what aligns with their preferences and Paul says I've been commissioned to preach the gospel but I'm not going to be preaching a gospel that you will think is culturally appropriate I'm not going to preach a gospel that you will think is politically correct I'm not here to perform miraculous signs I'm not here to speak with eloquent words that suit your view of wisdom I'm proclaiming a message a message of Jesus and his cross, a message that will be offensive, a message that will be unacceptable to the natural mind, but a message that alone can save sinners. I was thinking this week uh, of uh, growing up in the, the early days of, of, of my church home back in Memphis at Independent Press and the verses that, that we were taught in, uh, in junior church and yes, we got John 3.16, but we also got some other verses. We got Acts 4.12 is one of the ones I've, I've remembered since I was a child where Paul says this, or where Luke says this, or writes this, excuse me. This is Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. He says this, salvation is found in no one else, 
For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That's offensive. There's only one way of salvation, only one way to be reconciled to the God of the universe, to the creator God, and that's through his son Jesus. That's not an acceptable message in Paul's day, and it's not an acceptable message in our day. But that's the message that saves sinners. And then he quotes, uh, Paul here quotes from Isaiah where God says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, I will frustrate. And in the context of that, the people of Israel are, are um, as, as Isaiah says, honoring God with their lips, but not with their hearts. And the Assyrians are planning to attack Judah. And the Lord tells the prophet not to fear, not to worry, but to trust in him. The, wor- the Lord tells the prophet, the king of Assyria's plan is gonna fail. And the point is that the wisdom that they have to depend on is not the wisdom of alliances with other countries and kings, it's the wisdom of God revealed in his word. Trust God. His wisdom is eternal. The world's wisdom, he says, will be destroyed. Here's the bottom line. This is in your outline. Here's the bottom line. Paul's saying this, to those who are perishing, they'll live according to the standards of human wisdom and therefore they will wrongly view the cross as foolishness. That's not the message they want to hear. They want to see miraculous signs. They want to hear eloquent wisdom shared with them. So if that's what the world wants, Surely there was an expectation of Paul that he would adjust his ministry, he would adjust his message to speak to what they want, to accommodate their desires. But Paul would not do that. I was reading this week the story of a, of a man named Harry Gordon Selfridge. Probably many of you have never heard that name. Uh, this is back in 1909, so over 100 years ago. Harry Gordon Selfridge was an American billionaire who founded Selfridge's department store in London. And he coined a lot of management phrases of business and leadership phrases that helped him succeed and become a billionaire. I read a bunch of them this week, and some of them are very short, and you're like, yes, that's modern, modern wisdom, yes. But one that I particularly liked with, was this one. He said, people will sit up and take notice of you. Think about this in the business world. People will sit up and take notice of you if you will sit up and take notice of what makes them sit up and take notice. Right? Say, pay attention to your customer. Well, the the cliff note version of this that he wrote was this. This is the one we've all heard of. The customer is always right. That's Selfridge's statement. The customer is always right. That's... The, the retail empire that he built was built on that phrase. We still use it today. If you want to flourish in business, the customer's always right. Find out what the customers want, what the people want, what their preferences are, and then cater to those preferences. Paul wouldn't do it. That probably works great in business, but Paul would say that is not a philosophy of ministry compatible with the message of the cross. The customer is not always right, Paul would say. The listener, the reader is not always right. The congregant in Corinth is not always right. Might also say the congregant at Lookout Mountain Press is not always right. The word is right. 
The wisdom of God, Paul says, it can't be trusted, but the word of God, the wisdom of God, it's eternal. And it can always be trusted. So that brings us to the point, to point two. What does the world pursue? We've seen that. What does the church have to proclaim? What, what message does it have to proclaim? Well, Paul says in verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And look, not with words, plural, of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. For the word, singular, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Remember, the world wants evidence-based wisdom, eloquent words, plural, and Paul says, all I have to offer is the word, singular, the unchanging, unaccommodating gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ crucified. And then look what he goes on to say. Go down to verse 21 and we'll read through the end. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, through worldly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What does the church have to proclaim? Simply this, that God sovereignly calls sinners to faith in a crucified Savior. It pleased God to save those who believe. Those who are called, Jews and Greeks, those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To a world that wants the concrete evidence to a world that wants eloquent words. What message does the church have to offer? Simply the message of Christ crucified for sinners. A stumbling block, he says, to some. You know, some of the English translations of the Greek are, are really good and some of them are just kind of don't quite get the point across. Stumbling block, I'm not sure that's heavy enough to fit the Greek. The Greek word is scandalizo. We get the English word scandal. It's a scandal, the gospel message of a savior crucified, the son of God. It's a scandal to the Jews. It's foolishness or folly. The Greek word there is moria, M-O-R-I-A. We get the word, English word moron from it. It's moronic. It's idiotic to others. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God for salvation. I, I was thinking this week, it's almost impossible for us to really get a sense of how radical Paul's message was because the cross is just not that offensive in our day. We put it on greeting cards, on Christmas cards. We make beautiful heart pine crosses for our worship spaces. We make jewelry out of it gold and silver jewelry and wear it on our fingers or wear necklaces or earrings. It's just that the cross in our day is unoffensive and clean and safe, but it was not so in Paul's day. Cicero uh, was a great Roman scholar and philosopher and orator, and he lived 
about 50 BC, just, just before Jesus, this is what Cicero wrote about the Roman cross. He says the very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is a gruesome, vulgar, shocking thing even to mention in polite society. Is that how we view it? But you see, that's why Paul's message was such a hindrance, was such a stumbling block, a scandal. That's why Paul's message was moronic, was idiotic to those who are perishing. That's why people reacted the way they did often to Paul preaching the gospel. It's absolutely scandalous to say that salvation comes through placing one's faith in a criminal who died on a Roman cross. It's moronic, it's idiotic to think that the only way to be reconciled to the one true God is through faith in a man who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. And yet that's the message of the scriptures. Salvation's found in no one else, in no other name under heaven other than Jesus. That's why Paul would write later uh, to the church in Galatia and he would say, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Because to the believer, to the one being saved, the cross means everything. So let me wrap up with this. As you and I uh, begin this holy week, I wanna encourage us to rejoice that in the infinite wisdom of God, he lovingly chose to send his son to die on a Roman cross for people like us. And as we reflect upon this week, this holy week, as we reflect upon all that he's done for us, let's do so not expecting that the world will understand it and not being upset that they don't. Let's not be upset that they may view it as foolishness. Their hearts haven't been changed yet. Maybe God will use us to share the message of the gospel. And let's never forget that it's not out of any great wisdom on your part or mine that we figured this out and came to faith. The gospel message is hearts are changed by the spirit of the living God Eyes are open to the truth of the gospel by the spirit of the living God, not by the wisdom of the individual. Paul closes with this. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. There it is. There's the, the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. There's power in weakness. There's glory in suffering. The first shall be last and the wisdom of the world is worthless. But the wisdom of God is invaluable. Let's pray together. Our Father, your word tells us so much about your wisdom. Truly, it's far greater than ours. You said in Isaiah that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. That even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we know this to be true, Lord. Who among us would have ever thought that the worst crime ever committed, the murder of your son Jesus on a Roman cross, would be the path through which you would reconcile sinners like us to yourself? Lord Jesus, 
The word also tells us so much about you. You're mighty to save. You're humble in your birth, exalted in your reign. You're the dispenser of all our joys and our good gifts. And you're sovereign over all our disappointments and heartaches. You're fully present with us and you're preparing to return for us. You're working in all things for our good and ruling over all creation. We ask, Lord, that as we go through this holy week, you would overwhelm us afresh with the reality of all that's been done for us and all that you're doing in us. We ask that you would fill us afresh with your spirit that we might grasp more fully each day the reality of our redemption through your righteous life, through your atoning death, and your powerful resurrection. And we ask all of this in your saving name alone. Amen.